0: This is Jeffrey Madoff, and welcome to our podcast called Anything and Everything with my partner, Dan Sullivan. You know, there's a difference in how we consume media now. I remember, sounding like the old guy, I remember way back. Well... You've got a perfect
1: right to, you know. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) No, no, I mean, 70 is all forgiveness after 70. You can do anything you want after 70. Like people give me all sorts of advice. And I said, you know, after you pass 70, advice might be good, might not be bad. But he said, "Uh, you know, you make it to 70 and then I'll start taking your advice seriously.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember when a new album would come out and in particular it would be a Beatles album when I was in college. And that would be an event. Somebody would buy the album, we'd go to their apartment and usually passing a joint around and listening to the album all cranked up loud. And there'd be like seven or eight of us listening together. Now it's earbuds. Mm-hmm. and that whole level of social interaction is gone mm-hmm. and it's just not a thing. And there was a physical album yeah. and a physical cover and physical liner notes and you know some very cool cover art mm-hmm. that was done but it was that whole experience that was a social experience is gone and now it's to a point this isn't a new insight but When you see people at concerts and they're holding up their phones, I don't know whether it's proof that they were there Mm -hmm. or what, but they're even removing themselves by viewing through another window at a live event. And that just strikes me as so weird because I think it's so important to be present.
1: Well, I think that people feel lost if they don't have their technology between themselves and the event that's actually happening, the experience. One day we were at the Grand Canyon, I had never been to the Grand Canyon, Babs had been there, so we drove up from Phoenix and I was, you know, I don't take to heights real well. So I stayed well back, you know, it was sunset. The next day I just walked out, you know, sufficiently far away from the edge. And there were Japanese tourists there who had their heels to the edge and they had their arms around each other. And they're having their picture taken. And I said, you know, I have a feeling with them that they don't actually have the experience until they get back to Tokyo and look at the photos, you know. And I think there's a feeling you go mountain trekking and people will have earbuds and they'll have a iPhone or they're taking photos of it. And it's kind of like they need the technology as an intermediary between them and Something that's not curated for them. You know, it's an experience and they don't know what do I do with this experience, but the technology disciplines and tames the experience for them.
0: Yeah, I wonder though, that was a pretty sudden and quick bridge from experiencing things with others to that switch. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when it went from albums to CDs. Mm-hmm. And it was almost instantaneous. Yes, that all of a sudden it was CDs. Now I happened. Oh to yeah,
1: be- well you had the cassettes in between. You had the cassettes because I remember getting one of the original Walkman and I had some Bach, which was fantastic. Johann you know, Sebastian Bach, and I would listen to it on the airplane, and I would just get lost in it, you know, because the sound quality was so good you know, to my judgment, it was terrific sound quality. And yeah, it was long playing, you know, it was both sides of the album, on one cassette tape. So there was that period with cassette tapes. And I started off, you know, when I would have recordings, coach stuff, you know, where I would talk things through. And we went through a long cassette stage, probably about five, six years before CDs came out. I
0: remember that well, you could have a cassette player as part of your integrated sound system at home. Back in, I think it was 1980 or 81, I met Akiro Morita, who was a chairman of Sony, mm-hmm. and his wife, who was very much into fashion. I had been selected as a result of a blind competition. I won and was invited over as a director to direct the French collections, that they were all being videoed. And so I was. I had a number of crews all over Paris and was doing that. Mrs. Morita, who was very much a supporter of fashion, gives me a Walkman. I said, you know, what's this? And she said, well, we think this is really going to be something, which at that time were, you know, cassettes. Then they eventually morphed into the CD Walkman. And they gave it not just to me, they gave it to a bunch of people they thought were going to be trendsetters. And as a result, you are an influencer. You are an influencer, Jeff. Well, that's true. (laughs) And that's what they thought. Anyhow,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. that's what they thought. I think when you start thinking that about yourself, you're in trouble. (laughs) That's that's, that's what they thought. And it was really interesting because all of a sudden people are walking around and people would come up to me and say, what's with the headphones, Mm -hmm. you know, because people didn't walk around with headphones and, of course the rest is history as they say and what's also interesting from a business point of view is apple coming on the scene some years later obliterated the notion and name of the walkman with the ipod and that was kind of the end of sony's dominance but they created the personal listening experience Mm -hmm. and i thought how cool is this you're walking around listening you can put together the soundtrack to your own life I'd wear it at the gym, but I never wore it walking around because I wanted to be present. Yeah, well, I would
1: do it if I was taking a flight, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, same like, thing, me too. Something like that, yeah. Interesting story about Morita. You know, Marita was a real renegade in Japanese industry at that time. He said, you know, I think one of these days we're just going to take everybody's CV, their resumes, and we're just going to burn them. And he said, you know, the Japanese put so much emphasis on where the kid went to kindergarten, where they went to grade school. These kids are under intense pressure to compete for grades. From the time they get bathroom etiquette down, they're already competing and having to do long hours. And Marita didn't go through that route at all because, you know, he was very young when the war ended and then got into business, you know, as jobs and everything. So he was invited to Harvard Business School as a speaker. And he came over and he had a and a afterwards. And the question came to him, you know, with the Japanese, so this is the early 70s, you know, right when Sony is pioneering all sorts of stuff, and so are a lot of other Japanese firms. And he said, you know, how long before the Japanese surpassed the Americans in innovation? He says, it never happened. He said, it'll never happen. And, you know, it was almost like reverse racism. You know, it was the way he said, he said, there's no possibility. He I can tell you there's no possibility of the Japanese outpacing the Americans. And he said, can you give me one reason why that's true? And he said, yeah, no garages. <laughs> he says, kids aren't allowed to be on their own and tinker in Japan. Interesting. And it's an interesting insight. And I mean, you had a basement where you tinkered. Yeah. I had barns, I had garages, I had greenhouses, you know, like I had an enormous amount of time on my own. When I look back at my life, the amount of time of my entire life divided by two represents the amount of
0: time that I've spent alone (laughs) out of 78 years. Interesting. You know, it's also interesting to me i remember when i was a little kid made in japan meant that it was junk yep somehow late 60s early 70s the electronic sony made the best tvs for they still make great tvs and the other two great brands are you know the lg and samsung Mm -hmm. not japanese but you know it's interesting the switch that happened where it used to be you know rca and motorola and zenith and so on and that happened in a lot of areas it also happened in motorcycles mm-hmm. you know starting with honda yeah. and uh, i sold motorcycles when i was in college mm-hmm. although i preferred the look and sound of the british motorcycles i had a triumph and a norton but you know that dominance came in Cars, the same thing started happening, and I, I believe that isn't Toyota still the largest selling automobile in the world? Depends on you know how they slice it, because
1: I think that Volkswagen, which has a number of different bodies, I think last year above Volkswagen, but it's about nine and a half million. Because I was looking at the EV statistics against fossil fuels, okay. And, you know, it's funny what people can do with numbers because as of right now, EVs, I'm, I'm talking about passenger cars, EVs have just passed 10 million, 10 million total vehicles in the world, okay? And last year was a really bad year, like 2020 was a really bad year for all gas and diesel, and it was like 78 million, right. you know, and that was for last year, Okay. So I point this out to people. We have a Tesla, Babs has the X, you know, which he loves. I have no opinion.
0: <laughs> because she loves it, so you have no opinion. <laughs> That's exactly right. You just gave the secret to a long enduring marriage. Oh, yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. First thing in the morning, you wake up and you said, I've been thinking. You're right. <laughs>
0: yeah. I wake up and apologize.
1: <laughs> but i just go back and i look at the statistics so 11 is basically there were enough electric vehicles that you could start counting them you know so it was 2011 so we've had 10 years in and they've reached the 10 million mark they just surpassed the 10 million mark you know and during that same period there're uh, easily there're probably 600 million gas and electric cars and the thing is they're making cars really well In other words, the quality of cars is really, really quite extraordinary today. And the other thing is the cars with electric and gas are actually becoming very electrified. They're replacing mechanical parts with chips. So, you know, let's take a Buick, a Buick, you know, one of their top level Buicks probably has 150 chips in it for different things, you know, and all the systems inside the motor. And they do that because their way of competing is actually to drop the weight of the car. So a brand new car today would weigh maybe 30% less than its equal model 20 years ago. What's happened with that is they've gone from metals to composites and plastics. And the other thing is that they've replaced mechanical parts made out of steel And they've replaced them with chips made out of sand (laughs) or whatever it is. And they're becoming much more efficient. They're much more responsive. They're much safer. You know, the braking systems are better. The air conditioning is great. The engine is terrific. And they have such an infrastructure supporting them. And the one thing the EVs always talk about, there's no repairs. Okay. But that's not true. That's not true. And when there is a repair, it's not a fast repair with the Tesla. It takes us 45 minutes to drive to the nearest, and then you have to make an appointment. So it's 45 minutes, three days from now. And he's done it on the cheap in the sense he's got no servicing organization behind him, you know, except, I mean, probably Beverly Hills has 10 of them, you know, like there's places that are big Honda users. The other thing that's really happened is that the government only gives the subsidy for buying an EV up until the car maker's two hundred thousandth vehicle. Okay. Ours was thirteen thousand dollars. And I I tell you, I resented that money as I cashed the check, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. I said, why am I getting paid thirteen thousand dollars for a luxury car purchase, you know, and everything like that. But Now that he's way past 200,000, I mean, the majority of EVs, total world, you know, they're more Tesla than anything else. Now the other car makers are getting the uh, subsidy. He says, you know, I don't think we should have those subsidies. I thought about this and I, uh, you know, I just don't think it's fair that people should be. You know, wealthy people. I know a lot of wealthy people they have at Tesla. And, and upon reflecting on the whole experience, I don't think there should be any subsidy. <laughs> and he says, and I don't think government should pay for the charging stations either. I don't think people should be taxed for char- <laughs> charging stations, you know. But he's like a, I call him, he's a government subsidized techno performance artist. <laughs> <laughs>
0: An interesting title. And I think
1: you're right. No, no, but think about how he's positioned himself. What he says is interesting to people as
0: what he makes. Oh, yeah. First of all, I guess the thing that's most interesting to me about Musk is that when Steve Jobs died, there was to many people a void in the visionary business leader spine. And, you know, somehow, I mean, Edison, you know, going back in time, Edison was someone who knew how to market his personality mm-hmm. and position himself as a eccentric genius. And Steve Jobs for the generation became the visionary genius. And then when he died, Musk seems to have taken over. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not Tim Cook. It's not Jeff Bezos. It's Musk. Mm-hmm. I wonder, what is it in a culture that there has to be somebody to look up to like that? I don't know where that comes from.
2: Yeah.
1: As it relates to technology and business, I think that that model has been there for a long time. And I think it goes back before the 20th century, actually. First of all, it was a pioneering country in many different Areas. And you want to believe that the people who are out there forging new territory and creating new communities and everything else. I think that was part of it. You know, the characters in the Wild West who became well known in New York City through the media and through small books and everything like that. I'm reading a book right now and it's a fascinating book, uh, not a long read, and it's called What Tech. ECH, what tech calls thinking. First of all, it's a fascinating title. And he's a professor, German born, his first name is Adrian with an A, DAUB, D-A-U-B. And he teaches at Stanford. Okay, So he's reflecting on that there's a particular type of thinking that the technology companies do themselves. And there's a certain type of thinking that they will allow you to do about them. And so that's his thesis, you know, as they've developed a certain way of thinking. And you know, he gives some roots, but one of the roots that he gives and she wasn't certainly wasn't trying to do this was Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand. And he said so, if you think of Fountainhead and you think of Atlas Shrugged, there's these magnificent entrepreneurial hero figures, okay? And she said if you didn't know better, they built the buildings by themselves. There was no teamwork. There, you know, there were, there was no levels of organization. It was like not only did they have this brilliant design vision, but they actually built the buildings themselves. And she says nothing that happens in business happens except through a collective of many, many different skills. And she was a Hollywood writer and she knew how films were put together. And there, there was, you know, it wasn't the brilliant. Person, it was hundreds of individuals.
0: Now, give me that title, What Tech Calls Thinking.
1: Is that what you said? Yeah, What Tech Calls Thinking. And then he he takes a look at it. It's a fascinating book, and I'm on my third read. I started middle of December. And, you know, it's the sort of book, if you have a stretch of reading time, you could probably finish it in three days, you know, just making it part of sit down time reading. But he just goes through and he said, the thing that He observes that there's kind of like a reality at the center of the tech world. And we'll go back to Elon Musk. And he said that everything is about the platform. He says you have to understand that and content has absolutely nothing to do with, especially the communication companies. It's the platform. And the platform needs customers to grow the platform. And he said that they don't actually communicate information, they communicate triggers.
0: So go deeper into that.
1: Well, a trigger is something that someone gets an emotional hit about and immediately wants to respond or to argue with or to send on to other people, okay? And he said the whole medium of growing one of the platforms is triggers. Okay. And he's using Facebook as his main example there. And he uses Twitter too. And he says, you know, Twitter, if you just looked at the tweets, there would be no real controversy about Twitter. He says it's the retweeting that were all the controversy as people's triggered responses to other things. And he gives the example, the New York Times had this woman, she's Asian and she comments on social matters or media matters anyway. But she's had a checkered past. You know, She's had a controversial past and she attracted just an enormous audience of women haters. Okay, these are real haters. And he says something happens strange on the Facebook platform and on the Twitter platform that people lose almost all their humanity in order to become an algorithm. And he said, it actually turns you and encourages you as an individual to become an algorithm that gets triggered by technical algorithms. And I'm going through it and I'm finding that I think this guy is really onto something. It's kind of like I I get a feeling that he's really getting to the center of the code, and he said, what I find that I saw YouTube, you know, I go on YouTube to see if somebody has some interviews. And he said, I think I'm getting close to something that the tech people realize they're doing but can never admit in public. That's all about their platform. They're not trying to save the world, they're not trying to bring people together, they're not trying to make people more efficient, they're not trying to make them more effective, they're trying to build their platform. And everything is about the platform.
0: Well, I think, you know, we've been
1: witnessing that. And I think it happens in other areas. I mean, I think all industries, there's a striving for a platform. I think it happens in the movie business, you know, that there's bringing Marvel comics into the movie realm is that there's a Marvel Heroes platform, okay? And you can do as many of a particular character, you can do as many films as you can, because the response is there for
0: anything new about the platform. So what would be the difference, or how would you define the difference between a platform and the distribution of what goes on the platform? Yeah, well,
1: a big example of one of the early platforms that I think lasted right up until cable was NBC. Like NBC was really the The muscle-bound radio network, they came up with 20s. I think it was in the 1920s. One of the first real hits for NBC was Amos and Andy, okay? This was in the 30s. I think this was the early 30s in that. And NBC, they really went network-wide. So how do you have a radio station that's a national radio station? And so they created their affiliated networks. It was all sent by telephone line. I don't know if you know that. It was AT&T, RCA, and NBC were all clumped together almost like in a single mechanism and that they controlled the lawn lines. So the big thing is you couldn't have network radio without the lawn lines. And AT&T controlled the long distance lines, you know, between cities. And then RCA was huge in the music recording. So, they did that. So, the three of them got together. AT&T, I mean, they talk about Google and Facebook and that. There was no monopoly like AT&T. You know? I mean, there was no monopoly like Standard Oil. I mean, Standard Oil, I mean, uh, <laughs> if you were another independent oil company, try to find the rail line that's going to carry your oil, mm-hmm. you know try to find it, you know? And I think the same thing with AT&T is they just controlled the infrastructure so well. So I think the back to your distribution system, I think is that there's a fundamental infrastructure which lies under what people see. And the platform is both the underlying infrastructure and what is perceived to be created by
0: the infrastructure. So how would you define the platform? So, we know, let's say that Facebook is distributed on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how people get it. What would you say their platform is?
1: Well, the platform is actually Facebook. And there is actually the, I think the internet is unique in the sense that nobody really controls it. There's just too many players. I mean, China controls its part of the internet, but it has. No impact on the internet outside of China, except where they try to do it politically. Mm -hmm. But technologically, the internet is pretty, it got big before anybody knew what was happening. It just went, plus, since it's waves, you're not doing it through, you know, material. You're sending your signal through waves. I think it took off. Your friend Tim Wu makes a big point about that, that, generally speaking, the internet is today, you know, in terms of its still able to develop new stuff and people being able to take new advantage of it. He says, much as we think there's evil people sitting in a room, he said, actually, with the internet, everybody needs it, everybody wants it, and there's nobody who can really control it. Okay. But Facebook itself is a platform. You know, Apple is totally a platform. I would say that the other ones are platforms, too. So there's big platforms, but they tend to be nodes. They tend to have the network effect. It's hard to come along with another competitor. And Mark Zuckerberg says there's all sorts of competitors out there to what Facebook is doing. So there's one that's just for communities of 500 people. It's an independent Internet social media network, but it joins people who live in the same area of town together. Okay. And you have to apply for it. And, you know, you have to prove that the residence is actually your residence. And they have, you know, last I saw, they had about 5 million, they have 5 million people on their network. And to the degree that you're using that network, and you're not using Facebook, you're a competitor to Facebook, you're stealing away and it slowly grows and it doesn't cost very much. And the people in it are very mission driven, so they're not out for large bucks. So for example, think about Broadway when there were impresarios or there were people, you know, who tried to do this and he did the revamped Ford Theater in New York City. He brought back Showboat. Mm -hmm. He brought back Showboat That was his first entry into Broadway musicals. And he he did a wonderful resurrected version of Showboat here in Toronto, and then he took it to New York and it did really well. But his whole notion was that there were these big theaters in almost every major city in the United States that were run down and they weren't well used. And that as you gain momentum, that you could buy these. Okay, these, buy these theaters. So you would own the theaters. The investment group, whatever investment group you had, would own the theaters. And then you could, you had enough capital that if you created a brand new. So his, the one he created, what was it called? It went to New York and it, it did really well. It did here in Toronto, but he created a brand new musical. And it was on the scale of Rodgers and Hammerstein type of thing, new music and everything like that. They revamped a huge theater in Toronto called Pantages. Had started off as vaudeville theaters, and they had two vaudeville theaters right above each other. okay. And then when the movie industry, vaudeville went out, the movie industry came up. They broke it out into about six different theaters, and he bought up all the theaters. And he revamped it back to a single huge theater, like 2,500 to 3,000 seats. You know, this is a big theater. And beautifully done, beautifully done. And then he did the same thing on Times Square. I think the Ford is on Times Square. We went to see something. I think it was American in Paris. American in Paris had never been done as a musical until we saw it in New York. It was done as a movie. Right. And it was gorgeous. The lead roles are tough roles because you have to be an actor, you have to be a singer, you have to be a dancer. Remember, Leslie Caron was... Gene uh, Kelly. yeah, uh, Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron. And it's very demanding. First of all, you can't be four foot nine and have a gorgeous voice. You have to be kind of tall. So uh, it took a long time and they did the first play there. So we saw that there. Anyway, then he was arrested... By the Canadian Government for dodgy bookkeeping, and he had a arrest warrant in the United States, so he's not been in the United States for twenty years. I'll come up with his name. it's a fascinating history, but he had this big vision that he would create a nationwide theater network, and you create one play and you automatically got you either have that one play goes to all twenty five houses or you just create road shows and you can. So you have the theater and, you know, it was a great vision. He attracted an enormous amount of capital to do it because he had to revamp these theaters and they were big dollar items. Yeah. So I would say that if he had pulled that off, it
0: would have been a platform. Mm -hmm. But I think of a platform as something that sits on top of that platform. Yeah. And, you know, with an Amazon, that's a platform for retail goods.
1: Well, it started as books. I mean, he experimented with books. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I've got my, this is, I think, Kindle number 10 (laughs) that I've had. It's a really beautiful machine. You know, I mean, it's just a fantastically beautiful machine. Whatever else about Amazon people don't like, I said, you know, I really like this thing, you know. I'm always reading about five books concurrently, and it's a lot easier than having
0: five books. Yeah, it's funny. There are certain books that I will read on a tablet. Other books that I like owning. I prefer having a physical book. I like seeing, you know, that I've read this much and I've got that much left. And just there's something about a physical object that I really
1: like. But the Shakespeare original folios you have, you you actually want those. <laughs> That's correct. Yes. Physical, but it's not the <laughs> same seeing the... Original folios on Kindle. It just doesn't get the same. <laughs> That's right.
0: But what, what's interesting about what you're talking about to me is you mentioned now these local networks that are coming up as opposed to the national Facebook. Well, when you look at newspapers, okay, newspapers started as those neighborhood sheets that would be posted in the town square yeah. and that how many things circle back things got so big that they saw that local was no longer appealing because you couldn't aggregate the eyeballs or the money mm-hmm. sponsorship dropped off essentially went away local newspapers went away mm-hmm. local news for the most part went away And you know local news was mostly the revenue came from weather and sports
2: mm-hmm.
0: now there's a circling back to local yeah you know and you see that in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. And for instance, we're cycling back to physical records. Mm-hmm. The largest growing segment of music buying is vinyl again. That's become the thing. And every artist of note wants to release now on vinyl again. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think is really interesting. And it's not that it's retro. No, it's physical. Yeah, yes. Yeah.
1: Well, I think it's... It's yours. It's not in the cloud. It's not an idea in the cloud.
0: That's right. So, I mean, I do think there's a thing about ownership, but I also think that there is something about being able to touch and feel something. You can have an extraordinary amount of music on a small device. My phone is even bigger than it needs to be to handle you know, probably 100,000 albums or something. But there is something about the physical object. And everything that we've been talking about, when you talk about the platform and the distribution, there seems to be a certain desire. Well, first of all, exploiting existing structures. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an interesting area in business when, Edison was having a competition with and I'm trying to remember who it was to basically see who could light Philadelphia, you know, the street lamps. Right, It would have been Westinghouse. And what Edison did is put all the wires through the existing gas lines and went to those, and basically so there was a good part of the infrastructure in place, and he capitalized on that. Mm-hmm. And that's how he won that competition. It was very smart. Yeah, You know, when television grew, the reason cable came about, and this is in Tim Wu's book, but the reason that cable came about was you couldn't get a signal if you were in a valley area or out in some rural area. And everything was about increasing distribution. Yeah. And the more you increase distribution, the more chance you had of surviving and growing the business. Well, I think you can see this in a
1: lot of different areas. You know, the nationalization of the rail system in Great Britain, there was just British rail, you know, there wasn't anything else. And they went through their day, Britain really isn't a car country like we would consider a car country, first of all. They don't have that many super highways. And, uh, you know, the roads they do have were created a thousand years ago, you know, so they're even as two lane roads they're iffy so they they had that and they nationalized a lot of things they nationalized well the british broadcasting corporation is really interesting tim wu talks about that because it's actually privately held but given a monopoly by the government and the monopoly is that you have to pay for a license for the television you know and i think you may have had to pay a license for the radio and the early days so the bbc we wouldn't have anything like it in the united states like the bbc because it's such a dominant communication platform you know in great britain and you know they're in all areas i mean they're they make movies they make videos they have cable they have news broadcasts they have special broadcasts and they have theaters that you go to in the various towns but they were competing against developments that were happening in the European continent right during the day when you know, Hitler had a complete monopoly over all movies. He had complete monopoly. Stalin had the same thing. Mussolini had the same thing. So they were trying to say, how do we as a representative country, you know, where we have a constitutional monarchy and we have a parliament and everything. How do you compete with these tyrannies, these totalitarian countries who can control everything about the medium and still give a sense of unity about our medium? And I think the Brits probably have done the best job of that, of any country in the, on the planet.
0: And there's BBC America, which is owned by the American movie classics, AMC Networks, has that yeah yeah and it's interesting because they're also doing joint productions like killing Eve, Mm -hmm. and other things that you know they can both take advantage of the distribution systems that are in place yeah yeah but the reason i've been giving this
1: thought is i've strategic coach we've sort of maintained a platform about what we do and what i mean is that we only have one thing that we offer to the public which is workshops you know for entrepreneurs. So it's only for one, you know, one type of person has to meet certain qualifications. And it's, everybody goes through the same path of content, the content is the same for everybody. And I wanted to see one of the things, first of all, I'm kind of a simplifier. And I've seen so many entrepreneurs get into trouble, because they have one company, and then they get kind of bored and they create another company while keeping their first company and then they create another company and they have three or four companies, I've noticed that it gets very, very complicated and they don't really do with any of them what they could do if they were just focusing on one and they were really excited about it. So I've tried to see how do you develop something and keep it growing? So we're in our 33rd year now, 33rd year of the program. and. You know, we just had our second best sales year in history and by far the most profitable sales year simply because the costs have gone down so much, you know, with no traveling and no physical workshop, no food. We serve 25,000 meals a year, so Mm. we didn't have to serve 25,000 meals. So I'm very, very interested in it because I think that if you can see your company as three parts, there's the platform part of your company. And then there's the, what I call the program part of your company. And then there's the app part of your company. Just use the words that they use in the tech industry. Okay, so I think that the tech barons, the tech warlords who control all this, they watch the apps as an app strong enough that it can become a program. And as soon as it becomes a program, they buy it like Instagram was a program. You know, it wasn't just an app; it was a program. It, it had a lot of muscle to it. So Zuckerberg bought it out, and anything that looks like it would compete with a platform, they want to get rid of that real fast. They want to undermine
0: anybody else who tries to be a platform. Which is interesting because I think that's also a time-old business strategy. Yeah, yeah, buy up your competition, and either increase your own revenues by growing that business once you own own it, or destroy it. Thank you for listening to part one of the podcast. Dan Sullivan and I have a lot more to talk about coming up in part two. For more about me and my work, visit a creativecareer.com and com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.